Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And those of you who are regular listeners to the show know that we usually devote an entire hour to one theme, you know, one through line, one topic. Well, every now and again, there comes a week where we get a little bit crazy and bust right through that thematic approach. And this, my friends, is one of those weeks. So today we're bringing you one of our wild cards shows. We'll take a behind-the-scenes peek at a long-shuttered part of the Maryland Zoo. The last thing I recall being exhibited in here were hyenas. <gasps> no. Yes. And we'll check out the latest in the state's fight over fracking. Why should this county become a sacrifice zone for a company, Dominion Resources, that's based in Virginia, to make a lot of money selling Appalachian frack gas to India and Japan? Plus, we'll conduct our first ever interview with a guy wearing nothing but tidy whiteies. And we'll find out why he wants you to strip down, too. We're reaching out to big people, small people, old people, young people. Underwear knows no boundaries. Underwear knows no boundaries, exactly. But we'll kick off today's show with a little music. I'm not one for fortunes, I'm wishing on a star. And I'm studying all the stories and what our chances are. This is Broadway star Adina Menzel singing Here I Go, one of the songs from a brand new musical having its world premiere at DC's National Theater before heading to Broadway next year. It's called If Then. The story is about a woman in her late 30s who leaves a loveless marriage out west and moves back to New York City. Brian Yorkie wrote the musical's book and lyrics. And the show takes off from her first day in New York City She makes one of those seemingly small choices that ends up having enormous ramifications. And we follow two of the different paths her life might have taken from that choice. I had been really drawn to a musical idea that was um, based on the sort of choices and chance of your life and the question of whether we're destined to find certain things, whether it's our career or our, our true loves. This is composer Tom Kitt, and he and Brian Yorkie actually seemed kind of destined to find their career together, in a way. Kitt was a senior at Columbia University in New York, and Yorkie was a recent graduate when they came together to write the school's annual musical send-up of all things Columbia. It's called The Varsity Show. And in the interest of full disclosure... It would be good for your listeners to know that we did a show with you back in college. I should probably tell you that I was in that show. They should know that we wrote songs for Rebecca, (laughs) and she was fantastic in the show. It's true. And and we're both very impressed that you ended up in a much more responsible (laughs) profession than we did. You used your Columbia education (laughs) to good ends. (laughs) Okay, okay, the guys are definitely selling themselves short here. Their first big-time post-college collaboration, Next to Normal, wound up winning them three Tony Awards and the Pulitzer Prize. And like If Then, it too was on a D.C. stage before taking Broadway by storm. Next to Normal first premiered at Second Stage, an off-Broadway theater in New York. But the show was clearly not fully ready for you know, human consumption at that point. And David Stone, who was our producer, met Molly Smith, who runs Arena Stage. And they hatched a plan to bring the show down here to Washington, D.C. and work on it some more. The rest is history. 
and pretty fantastic history at that. And speaking of history, composer Tom Kitt says he's thrilled to try out another musical in Washington and at the National Theater of all places. I mean, that place is just brimming with stories. For instance, on April 14th, 1865, Tad Lincoln was attending a show there when his father, President Abraham Lincoln, was assassinated. But the National also has a rich history of serving as a hot spot for pre-Broadway runs of plays and musicals since it was founded in 1835. It hasn't had as many new shows trying out over the past few years, and to now be a part of a new tradition of taking shows to this beautiful theater and being here, I just feel very lucky. Is this where West Side Story tried out? I, and I believe um, a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum Oh, that's as well. right. Which is a legendary tryout because it wasn't right, it wasn't working, and Jerome Robbins came down to see it and said, change the opening number. So Sondheim wrote comedy tonight, Yeah. right? Yeah. Forum wasn't the only legendary pre-Broadway tryout at the National. Take Showboat, which opened here in 1927. John Loomis, the National's corporate administrator, knew someone who attended the show's very first performance. And it ran over into 1 o'clock in the morning, um, and so they did cut the show significantly from that point. Loomis has a printed list of many of the shows that pre-Broadwayed here, and let me tell you, can you read some of them more from your list? Sure. It goes uh, on. Philadelphia Story with Katherine Hepburn and Shirley Booth. And on. Hotel Paradiso, which uh, Angela Lansbury made her actual legitimate American stage debut here at the National Theater with Burt Lahr. And on. Little Moon of Alban, which uh, Julie Harris and Robert Redford brought read here. This list goes on for pages and pages, and you're only in the 1960s. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. Oh, and one of the, Hello, Dolly, pre-Broadway here. You could fill books here. As composer Tom Kitt mentioned, the National Theater's stream of pre-Broadway tryouts hasn't been as strong over the past few years. The 2000s have only seen a handful. One of the shows flopped on Broadway, and another closed before it even got there. John Loomis blames the slowdown on what he calls the ballooning economics of shows. The shows became bigger and bigger and more highly specialized technically, which made it more difficult to travel and move all that equipment. Um, Think of the helicopter in Miss Saigon. It was easier just to keep it in New York and stay there. And um, the product also started tapering off a bit as well. But Loomis and his colleagues hope If Then represents a brand new beginning for the National Theater, not unlike the show's protagonist when she moves back to New York to start her life over. Of course, though, as cast member Anthony Rapp points out, even after you make that fresh start, you never know where you'll wind up. There's the old cliches and the adages like the best laid plans, you know, God laughs. And this show, I think, takes all those themes and questions and really finds a way to dramatize it. But I think more than that, it's just the truth is no one alive ever knows what's going to happen. Anything can happen at any moment. And right now, what Brian Yorkie and Tom Kitt hope will happen is that they have a big hit on their hands. But they know only time will tell. I mean, that's what If Then is all about, after all. It also is about learning to trust your instincts and live in the moment and not be caught up in all the potential implications of each choice. Because if you really ever stop to think about how much could hinge on one seemingly random choice, you could be paralyzed. I think we've all been there, too. If Then makes its pre-Broadway world premiere at the National Theater from November 5th through December 8th. For more information on the show and to check out a video from the company's very first rehearsal, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Cause there's a moment when everything changes. There's a moment to leap off the cliff. There's a moment there's no turning back. No turning back. And you wonder what 
We'll head out of the city now to the western shore of the Chesapeake Bay, specifically to Calvert County, Maryland, and a place called Cove Point. That's where Dominion Power is looking to convert an existing natural gas import facility into a liquefied natural gas import facility. The plan promises to create thousands of construction jobs and help the U.S. make money off its surplus of natural gas. But some say the plant would be a net negative for the county and the state of Maryland. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has the story. Jean-Marie Neal leads me down a short, mulched path behind her house onto the sand of Cove Point Beach. It's beautiful. We're looking out onto the Chesapeake Bay, Cove Point Hollow specifically. There are other homes that back up to the beach, but mostly what you see here are trees, sand, and water, until you look to your north and a bit west, about a mile in the distance. That's where Dominion's property lies and where two stark white storage tanks rise up above the trees. The overall concern is that what you're doing is you're turning this entire area into an industrial site. I mean, that itself just blows your mind. Dominion owns more than 1,000 acres here, but only uses about 150 acres for actual operations. And that much won't change if its $3.8 billion project gets all the necessary permits from state and federal agencies. The company's expanded facility would allow Dominion to liquefy 750 million cubic feet of natural gas per day and export it with the help of an estimated 90 fuel tankers each year, massive ships that Jean-Marie Neal would see out her back window. Now keep in mind, Dominion in 2012 only had five ships coming in for importation, so they have a very minor operation there. That isn't really by choice. The fact is, importing natural gas doesn't make sense in the U.S. right now. The shale gas boom has made prices here cheap. The money is in exporting that gas to places such as India and Japan. But Dominion spokesman Dan Donovan says the company's plan isn't simply about profits. He says projects like Cove Point have support as far up as the White House. The uh, President of the United States has uh, uh, said that part of the, his program is increased uh, natural gas drilling in the United States so that not only we, not only if we have better air here, but we can export some of it and reduce the use of coal in other countries. So this project fits right into his environmental plan. Opponents of the plan have accused Dominion of hiding details about the project from the public and skirting close examination of its true environmental impact. Donovan says that couldn't be further from the truth. We've submitted the original filing, 12,000 pages of documents, studies of everything you can think of, archaeologically, geographically, air, everything, as part of the uh, working towards an environmental assessment, and since then we filed another 6,000 pages. Environmental groups want Dominion to submit to an EIS, an environmental impact statement, instead of the less stringent environmental assessment. Donovan says that's up to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which didn't ask for an EIS. And as far as public hearings... We've had tons of them. I mean, we've been to 50, I'd say, different, different things. People don't come. They think it's boring unless somebody scares them to come. Now I think they're going to start coming. We're going to have more. Uh, We've committed to several over the next few weeks. We're going to have announcements exactly when they are. And we'll tell them the facts. And uh, I think they'll be a lot less scared when they hear the facts. 
Mike Tidwell of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network says most local residents are only starting to grasp how massive the export facility will be and how much more industrial activity it will bring to Cove Point. If you're importing the natural gas from tankers, all you have to do is, is revaporize the liquid gas coming from the tanker. If you're exporting it, then you have to take gas piped from Appalachia to Calvert County and you have to liquefy it, and that liquefaction process takes a lot of energy. Enough energy to necessitate a new 130-megawatt power plant on the site. It's a power plant, Tidwell points out, that would pump no energy into Maryland's power grid. The local citizens pay the price. Consumers in India reap the benefits. While more local residents are raising concerns about the Cove Point proposal, Tidwell says this is much more than a not-in-my-backyard dispute. Both sides, he says, are trying to establish a foothold in the fight over fracking, the controversial drilling practice that is still, for now at least, banned within Maryland's borders. That's why many are looking to Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley and the Maryland Public Service Commission to stand in the way of Dominion's plan. The idea that you could build this industrial facility to liquefy and export frack gas in Maryland but not frack in Maryland is is absurd. Basically, we're in, in debating this facility to liquefy natural gas, we're also making a decision, will we or will we not frack in Maryland? If we build this facility, they will come with the fracking. Governor O'Malley's commission is exploring whether the state should allow drilling in the Marcellus Shale and is set to deliver its final report by the end of 2014. But if Tidwell and other opponents of Dominion's Cove Point project are right about the significance of the proposed facility, The governor may have to weigh in on the future of fracking in Maryland before then. Dominion is aiming to start construction here next summer. I'm Jonathan Wilson. We have photographs of Cove Point and more information about Dominion's proposal on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back going behind the scenes at the Maryland Zoo in Baltimore. Look, we don't need to be a giant zoo. We don't need to be something like San Diego. Um, We can be small, but focus on what we do well and do it even better. Plus, we'll explore the tricky divide between the haves and have-nots in the school lunch line. Denying a meal or providing an alternate meal could ruin that child for the rest of the school day and jeopardizing instruction. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Coming up this hour, we'll make some cinema, discover a spaceship, and dance in our skivvies as we continue our theme-free wild cards show. But first, we're going to head to school, the cafeteria to be exact, as we explore a question that's pretty tough to answer. How do we feed our kids who come to school without lunch money? As Jennifer Strong tells us, a lot of it depends on where that school is. Okay, show number in. Okay, bye, have the lunch. It's lunchtime at the Bradley Hills Elementary School in Bethesda, 
A friendly lunch lady calls kids by name and makes sure they put some fruits or veggies on their trays. It seems like a pretty routine scene, but nationwide there's no rule about what should happen in a school cafeteria when a child shows up without lunch money. Unless a family qualifies for free meals under the national school lunch program, schools get to figure it out for themselves. Diane Pratt Havner is with the Maryland-based School Nutrition Association. USDA advises schools that they're not obligated to provide meals to children who forget their lunch money. You heard that right. In some places, schools don't feed the kids who show up without lunch money, and that doesn't break any rules. In the absence of any guidance, many schools struggle to come to a consensus on how to respond when unpaid meal charges balloon out of control. In other words, the reason some schools don't feed these kids is they can't afford to. The government doesn't reimburse for food costs unless the child is covered by the federal meal program. So schools can wind up spilling a lot of red ink unless parents pay them back. Most schools use robocalls to remind parents of their debts. This is an important call from District of Columbia Public Schools. Your child has an outstanding meal balance of $2. Some get tough with families and use debt collectors, but this is expensive and it doesn't always work. Diane Pratt-Havner says unpaid lunch bills can quickly pile up and jeopardize a school's entire meal program. There are some districts throughout the country that have racked up tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt by allowing students uh, who don't have money for their meals to be able to charge meals time and time again. That's certainly the case in the D.C. public schools. Students owe cafeterias here about $100,000. This also used to be a problem in Alexandria's public schools. The head of school nutrition there recalls a time when students charged $10,000 worth of food in a single month. Not anymore. Elementary students who come without lunch money receive a cheese sandwich and milk. But that introduces one more thing. Let's call it the cheese sandwich debate. Those in favor say it allows schools to offer something to a child who would otherwise eat nothing. Critics say it points out to the class which kids don't have money. It's also not as nutritious or filling as what everyone else is getting. Jeffrey Prue heads nutrition services for Washington County Schools in Maryland. Denying a meal or providing an alternate meal to a child who could be 5 to 8 years old or 10 years old could ruin that child for the rest of the school day and jeopardizing instruction over meal charges. DCPS seems to agree. Despite the debt, all elementary students in the district are fed a complete meal, even if they never bring lunch money. Montgomery County takes something of a hybrid approach. Most of its schools let kids charge meals when they don't have money up to $10. That's four full-priced lunches. After that, kids get the cheese sandwich. Marla Kaplan is head of nutrition services for the Montgomery County Public Schools. She says some principals go to great lengths to keep that from happening. There are some schools here that really don't want the cheese sandwich to be given. The schools will put money directly on some children's accounts just to get them so that it won't be at the minus $10 where they can't get a full meal. Alexandria also tries to ensure kids from lower-income families get full meals. It provides free lunches to all students who qualify for a lower-priced meal under USDA guidelines. Usually, those kids would pay 40 cents. Still, somewhere between junior high and high school, the vast majority of all schools in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia will turn away a student who is unable to pay that day. Schools say by then, the kids understand it takes money to buy food. The exceptions are the schools trying out something called community eligibility. 
Both D.C. and the Washington County schools are participating in the USDA pilot program. It comes from Michelle Obama's work on school nutrition. Under it, all students receive a full lunch. No money is collected. There's no paperwork for parents. Here's Jeffrey Prue again in Washington County. This is good for kids. The side benefit to this program is we've eliminated charges at these schools. They do not exist. That does save several thousand dollars a year. But here's the catch. Since students aren't paying for these meals, the schools get paid through USDA funds. The amount of money a school gets varies greatly. It's based on a complicated formula that includes things like local food stamp data. It's working for three of Prue's schools near Hagerstown and for 75 schools this fall in D.C. But for most schools, Diane Pratt-Havner says this program is not an affordable option. Marla Kaplan in Montgomery County agrees. She says the county ran the numbers and couldn't make the math work for any of its schools. So it seems debates over cheese sandwiches and how young is too young not to be served in the lunch line won't be over anytime soon. I'm Jennifer Strong. What's your take on the so-called cheese sandwich debate? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at wamumetro. next story deals with music and movies and cancer, specifically certain kinds of cancer that affect women. Each year, more than 90,000 women are diagnosed with a gynecological cancer. A new film by DC-based production company Spark Media highlights a group of oncology surgeons who specialize in treating these cancers. They formed a rock band called NED, short for No Evidence of Disease. Emily Berman sat down with the film's director, Andrea Kalin, who began by explaining how she came across this particular idea for a documentary film. This one actually was brought to my attention at a back-to-school night for the field school. Uh, the manager of the band, who at the time was the head of Walter Reed's Women's Health Research Center, mentioned to me that there was a band of six GYN surgeons, that they had cut two albums, that they were working with a producer who had put out albums for Linkin Park and Ziggy Marley. And I was intrigued. I thought, you know, doctors who are rock docs, this could be fun. But when they were playing their music, I could see engaged the audience that was there. And after I went up to a few of the women and said, what did you think of the music? Loved it. But what did you get out of this? You know, why would you even listen to this? And one immediately perked up and said, I'm going to make an appointment for and with my doctor. And that's when I felt, wow, they are really making that connection between using this unconventional way to get a message out and that message actually having an impact. When I needed a miracle, you just looked deeper into my eyes. My soul igniting, our worlds collided in ecstasy. Can you talk about the experience of actually being at an NED concert? An NED, it's the name of your film and the name of the band. Are the fans there mostly patients of the doctors? The typical crowd are mostly the doctors' patients, their friends, their families, their loved ones. They call themselves NED heads, 
and they'll shave NED into their um, just spouting hair that's coming after a chemo regime. They'll tattoo Ned on their breasts. Um, they're incredibly excited to be able to see their doctors also in a different context. So in the film, we hear not only from doctors, but from a lot of their patients who are living through perhaps the most intense emotional time of their lives. How did you convince these people to share their stories while they're going through such a sensitive time? The patients are really the emotional core of the film. So much attention is paid to breast cancer that they were willing to embrace a crew that could break through the silence of a disease they were suffering from, but no one really knew about. But there were moments that it was raw and very difficult to keep the camera rolling when you're experiencing things that are totally unscripted and often very painful. There's an acute mission that we felt with this film that we want to get people to start talking about things that are uncomfortable. And that's something we hear from one of the doctors in the film, Dr. John Boggess, who works at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, says the music for him is to get people to talk about something that no one wants to talk about. Yeah, I think the release valve that they need through the music. It's really important as physicians, as surgeons that have an incredibly vicious and demanding schedule with outcomes that are less than optimistic. And for the patients, I think it gives them a chance to see the humanity in their doctors. And that changes their relationships. So throughout the film, we hear many patients telling their doctors that they love them. And this really struck me because there's even a patient who passes away in the film and her husband recalls her last words. And I want to play a clip of that. Mm -hmm. The last words that she said, I remember vividly. Again, it was Dr. Soper. And I think he was holding her hand. Mm -hmm. And he explained to us the reality of it. We knew it was, we knew that things were winding down. Yeah. And again, she hadn't spoken not for two days. And she suddenly lifted up her head and looked at Dr. Soper full in the face. And she said, I love you. Thank you. And those were her last words. So, so her last words were, I love you. Thank you. To the doctor. I mean, not to the husband. The husband's recalling it. It's a really intimate relationship that they form. I was able to look at doctors in a different way. We think when they close the door and bring in the next patient that... Most of them just forget about us and move on. And what I witnessed is these surgeons, and I think most in general, do not just forget about the patients, that it's something emotionally they really have to wrestle with. And one of the doctors actually wrote a song about that called Third Person Reality. Starts with denial, there must be some mistake. Check the lab, check the name, double-check the date. We bargain a while as the clouds settle on. A week, a month, a year, I can't predict how long. We hear a lot about 
breast cancer, but we don't hear so much about other GYN cancers, um, which affect 90,000 women a year in the U.S., a third of whom will die. How big an issue is this in the United States and around the world? In the last 30 years, one million women have been diagnosed with a GYN cancer. You have as many women die of GYN cancers as men do of prostate cancer, yet prostate cancer research receives 50% more funding than all GYN cancers combined. And then when you look beyond our own borders, the need is even higher. In Africa and Southeast Asia, cervical cancer is the leading cause of women's deaths in the Southeast Asian region and also in Africa. Andrea Kalin, thank you for your film and for chatting. Thank you for allowing us to make some noise. That was Andrea Kalin, director of the film NED, No Evidence of Disease, speaking with Metro Connection's Emily Berman. The film is screening on November 5th at Landmark Bethesda Row, and the band is playing live on November 2nd at Penn Social in downtown D.C. You can find more information about both on our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story takes us up to Baltimore. That's where you'll find the Maryland Zoo. It's one of the oldest zoos in the country, dating all the way back to 1876. And evidence of those early days can still be found in a part of the zoo not many people get to see anymore. Claire Fiesler went on a rare behind-the-scenes tour and brings us this story. It's early morning on a Sunday when I meet up with the Maryland Zoo's press officer, Baltimore native Jane Ballantyne. We're whizzing along on a golf cart past a do-not-enter barrier near the zoo's entrance. To our left, some African-crowned cranes are calling in the morning sun. This is the oldest zoo exhibit in the zoo and was built in 1876. So this zoo came into being in 1876, so this was one of the first things to be built. We're in a part of the zoo called the Main Valley, next to an enclosure known as the Round Cage, It looks almost medieval. It's a hulking, wrought iron enclosure, now overgrown with kudzu and no bigger than a one-car garage. The last thing I recall being exhibited in here were hyenas. (gasps) No. Yes. It's hard to imagine anything of substantial size being confined behind these bars on a concrete slab. Back in 1876, it was really a place to, you put an animal, you let people come and see it, and you gave it food and water, and that was that. The Maryland Zoo used to be run as a municipal zoo for the city of Baltimore. And like a lot of municipal zoos, it had periods during which it suffered, competing against other city funding needs, with no money to replace outdated cages. But to really understand how we got here, you have to reach back to the early part of the century. We just took, collected uh, everything that came along. That's Lucille Quarry Mann, a former Bethesda resident, who in the 1930s used to travel around the world collecting animals with her husband, the director of the National Zoo. She passed away in 1985, 
but was interviewed by the Smithsonian Institution in 1977 for its Oral Histories project. She and her husband would seek solitary, rare animals, like a gorilla, and when rarity wasn't found, they collected anything they could get their hands on. On a monumental trip from Indonesia, they brought 900 animals back to the U.S. We'd take a freighter, where we'd have uh, all the cargo space they wanted. Zoos weren't for education, or breeding, really. Uh, We've seen some pretty drastic changes in how these animals have been first housed. That's Mike McClure, general curator of the Maryland Zoo. You know, because that's what zoos did originally. You know, they were menageries that housed animals for people to come and see. We're having this conversation on a grassy hill overlooking the lush open elephant exhibit. Anna's dust bathing now back there. The elephants Anna and Dolly were brought here in 1985 from the rundown elephant house I had seen earlier. A lot of zoos during that time period really looked at privatization, and this zoo went private in 1984. Jane Ballantyne, the zoo's spokeswoman, says that made it easier to raise money and better care for animals. And in Baltimore, that meant the beginning of the 20-year phasing out of the now-closed Maine Valley. The Maryland Zoo has drastically downscaled the number of animals in its care. Mike McClure says it's still a work in progress. Look, we don't need to be a giant zoo. We don't need to be something like San Diego. Um, We can be small, but focus on what we do well and do it even better. And that's what we've been doing for the last almost 10 years now, I think. Good girl. And as they pursue that mission, zoo administrators are debating the fate of the antiquities in the main valley. Why not an animal-free exhibit on the zoo's evolution? Chain says it's an option on the table, one that might give visitors a new respect for just how far we've come. I'm Claire Fiesler. You can check out photos from Claire's visit to the now-closed sections of the Maryland Zoo on our website, metroconnection.org. And special thanks to the Smithsonian Institution Archives for the use of audio from the Lucille Quarry Man Oral History. After the break, the spaceship from Star Trek is living long and prospering right here in D.C. We'll find out how it ended up in the nation's capital. Very clearly, Paramount did not anticipate the universe that Trek became. Plus, we'll hear why one local indie band wants you to let it all hang out. We're just trying to bring our message of self-acceptance and loosening the tie on the collars of all the, the D.C. folk. In this case, loosening the belt on the pants. The belt on the pants. Taking, getting rid of the pants altogether. It's coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're taking a break from our usual thematic approach to the program and bringing you a show we're calling Wild Cards. 
Earlier in the hour, we swung by a few cafeterias to see what local schools are feeding kids who can't afford lunch money. And in just a bit, we'll visit an artifact that now lives at one of the Smithsonian Museums, but once lived long and prospered among strange new worlds on national television. But first, let's talk world records, as in the Guinness World Records. You may not know it, but the D.C. area shows up in that book an awful lot. The world record for the largest cupcake, for instance, weighing in at more than 2,500 pounds, was achieved by our very own Georgetown Cupcake. The record for the largest group to simultaneously make sandwiches was nabbed by the Corporate Executive Board Company of Arlington. 500 staffers made 1,000 turkey and cheese sandwiches in under five minutes. And the record for the largest game of red light, green light goes to the city of Manassas, where 775 people once took part in the children's game. But a local indie rock band is gearing up to give Washington another honor in Guinness's hallowed halls. The record for the most backup dancers. 547 is is what we're trying to beat. That's doable. It's very doable. Yeah, we're going to beat it. Michael Moon is one half of Wheelie, a D.C.-based band that, as Michael puts it, has been helping Washingtonians loosen up and have fun for three years now. We're just trying to bring even more fun and bring our message of self-acceptance and that Wheelie loves you and we want you to love yourself and loosening the tie, you know, on the collars of all the, the D.C. folk. In this case, loosening the belt on the pants. The belt on the pants. <laughs> Taking, getting rid of the pants altogether. Okay, just to back up a bit. You know how I said Wheelie is trying to break the record for the most backup dancers? Well, that wasn't their original plan. We were going to originally break the world record for the most people dancing in their tidy whiteies. Yep, you heard him right. Dancing in their tidy whiteies. See, Wheelie's new single is called The Underwear Song. And as Michael says, it aligns beautifully with Wheelie's message of self-acceptance and having no choice but to love yourself. It begins with, we, we're we all standing here. We're all standing here in our underwear. Every day we all just stand here. Every day we all got to look in the mirror. We're all standing here. There's a line in there that I really like that says, we either love ourselves or we love ourselves. And there is only this. So with this original goal of breaking the world record for the most people dancing in their underwear, Wheelie got a national underwear company to donate boxes and boxes of undershirts and tidy whiteies. But then Guinness got back to us just after we had received that shipment. And the Guinness people were like, okay, sorry to break it to you guys, but we already have a world record for the most people congregating in their underwear. It was a few thousand people. And we just can't categorize specific activities of people congregating in their underwear. That's the only record we'll take. So then we changed directions and we started doing some research and we found this one with the backing dancers that was doable, that we felt like we could do it. And then we thought, like, you know, if we're going to do these backing dancers, when will you ever have 550 people? Or 548, if you want to break the record. Dressed in the same costume. And further, the band thought, How cool would that look 
to shoot a music video of 550 people doing this movement all in the same costume. So we kept the underwear, added the backing dancers, and Guinness was like, you got it. So on Saturday, November 16th, Wheelie is inviting people to stroke a ballroom in Adams Morgan to make this dream a reality. And you're actually expecting like 500 something people. Yeah, we're um, expecting close to 600 people. And we're talking all kinds of people. Big people, small people, old people, young people. Underwear knows no boundaries. Underwear knows no boundaries, exactly. On hand will be more than three dozen dance captains to help participants learn the dance. Wheelie's also putting an instructional video on YouTube. But Michael says the dance itself is actually pretty easy, or as he puts it... Pedestrian-friendly, so it's designed for a lot of different folks... So if someone is thinking, I'm not really a dancer, you would still encourage them to come? I don't think it's about the dancing. I think it's about the message that potentially we could share with a lot of people, which is about putting yourself out there and having some fun doing it and hopefully, you know, breaking world record and feeling really good about that. Something else it's about is making other people feel really good. Wheelie has invited the local nonprofit Mary's Center to host a clothing drive the day of the event. The band will also donate a portion of participants' registration fees to Children's National Medical Center. To learn more about Wheelie's attempt to break the world record for the most backup dancers on November 16th, and to see that instructional video teaching you the underwear dance, visit our website, metroconnection.org. For our next story in today's Wild Cards show, we'll um, put on some clothes and head to a favorite destination for tourists and residents alike, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. The museum is home to a bunch of historic spacecraft, like the Gemini 6 capsule from which Ed White emerged to take the very first American spacewalk in 1965. This is the greatest experience Then there's the Apollo 11 command module from which Neil Armstrong left the first footprints on the moon in 1969. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But if you want to see what may be one of the most iconic spacecraft in history, you have to boldly go where many have gone before, to the museum's gift shop. Chris Klimek tells us why. It's possible to visit the National Air and Space Museum and never realize that one of the most recognizable spaceships ever imagined is hidden down in the basement. I'd like to see a little more attention drawn to it. There is a giant sign at the top of the escalator that points you to it, although I think people are more drawn to the one that says sail. This is Margaret Weidekamp, a curator in the museum's space history department. Specifically, I'm in charge of what we call our social and cultural dimensions of spaceflight collection. Space. Which means both memorabilia of the actual space program and also space science fiction objects. Such as? These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds. The Enterprise rests in a 360-degree case at the back of the gift shop, but you see it floating on the horizon as you step off the turbolift, or escalator. You have to approach it from a distance, letting it expand in your field of vision with each step. What it reminds me of is the sequences in the, the first two, I think, Star Trek movies where there's this long introduction of the ship as though it's the star of the movie and there's swelling music. 
But this isn't the big screen Enterprise. It's the original from the Star Trek TV show. And when you watch one of those episodes as aired between 1966 and 1969, you do not get a sense of how big this object is. 11 feet long. It's only a little smaller than my Corolla. There are two labels here, and one is for the fictional Enterprise. So we have a label for the Enterprise and how big she, as the ship in the nautical tradition, they would have said she is. And then also there's the label for the studio model. This is essentially two objects in one. This is the Enterprise, and then this is the 50-year-old prop that was used to film the idea of the Enterprise for the first time. As with any illusion, it's the idea that matters. The prop is just a means to an end, which accounts for the mixed emotions some fans feel when they see the Enterprise model. I think sometimes they're overwhelmed by the sense of getting to see the piece of the one true cross, the one prop that is a part of the original series television show. The last such vessel was built centuries ago, back in the 1990s. I think sometimes they're also very disappointed because they have a vision of the Enterprise from watching it on a cathode ray tube in Technicolor in the late 1960s or in reruns. It's a vision that was literally one-sided. The model was only detailed on its starboard side because the other one had wires running into it to supply power to the lights mounted within. Designer Matt Jeffries went through a lot of more traditional-looking proposals before Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry selected the now-familiar, vaguely swan-like design. The famous story is that he came in and Jeffries was holding up this little balsa wood model to show him the shape, and it was this shape upside down. And that Roddenberry flipped it over and said, okay, that's it. And we're so used to this profile, this uh, image of the Enterprise, which has then spawned dozens and dozens of other ships in the Trek universe, uh, that it's hard to picture that it could have looked like anything else. That vision of the 23rd century as imagined from the 1960s had a profound influence on many of the people who run the U.S. space program today. I think Star Trek inspired many of us in the game, you know, as we started in it, to say, okay, we're doing Apollo pretty darn hard, people to the moon, but look what we could have. This is Jim Garvin, the chief scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. I was like glued to it. I mean, I was 10, 9 years old. It was so imaginative, the characters. I mean, I like Spock, but, you know, everyone likes their... Kirk was the cool one for the girls, I guess. And the fact that there was an attempt to connect real physics with the ethics of exploring new frontiers... At the edge of what we could imagine it being like, it was just, it was mesmerizing. And he thinks the Enterprise belongs in the Air and Space Museum, alongside all those, you know, real spacecraft. It's, it's like a shrine at the Air and Space Museum. It really is. I mean, you know, a holy place to many of us. You walk in, there's a spare Viking lander, the first thing ever to land on another planet as a robot. You have the model they filmed the show on. The, this is our tangible legacy to what we've done. Some of it fiction, some of it real. Back at that holy place, the Enterprise is looking pretty good these days. The Smithsonian has conducted three major restorations of the model since it arrived disassembled in crates almost 40 years ago. It really does always look a little bit like it's kind of suspended or flying. And we have it standing on a stand because that was really originally how it was built to work. And the museum for years hung the object. And then when we did some research into the wooden structure of this core model, they realized that there were stress fractures in the wood. Becoming clinical, Captain. We can't handle it. And they decided to go back to the original system, which was to have it on a stand. Oh, that looks beautiful, Daniel. It has a start 
The final episode of Star Trek aired a few months before Armstrong took his one giant leap for mankind. A decade would pass before the first of the now 12 Star Trek films was released, almost two before The Next Generation became the first of four spin-off shows. But in 1969, Star Trek was deader than Mr. Spock at the end of The Wrath of Khan. And it stayed dead a lot longer than Spock did. Which is probably how the Enterprise ended up here. Very clearly, Paramount did not anticipate the universe that Trek became. When the National Air and Space Museum contacted Paramount, they were really looking for a prop to put at the end of a Life in the Universe exhibit that was on display in the Arts and Industries building because this building that we're standing in didn't exist until 1976. And so this was given to the museum as a part of that exhibit in order to really illustrate what it might look like when people went into space. But it was given, not loaned, and I don't think they had any idea what they were giving away. They might have started to figure it out a few years later. After a letter-writing campaign by Star Trek fans and a personal intervention from President Gerald Ford, NASA was persuaded to change the name of the very first space shuttle prototype, which is how the ship they had planned to call the Constitution went into the history books as... The Enterprise. I'm Chris Klemek. You can check out the Starship Enterprise for yourself. Just swing by the National Air and Space Museum gift shop any day of the year, except Christmas. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson and Emily Berman, along with reporters Chris Klemick, Claire Fiesler, and Jennifer Strong. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Stephen Yenzer. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our free podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll explore the D.C. neighborhood of Shaw. We'll revisit the highs and lows of this historic area and explore the many ways it's changing. We'll take a bite out of Shaw's rapidly growing restaurant scene, and we'll visit a local barbershop where residents have been getting a shave and shooting the breeze for 100 years. People don't go through life with so many true friends, and, you know, you have to cherish that. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.